Welcome to the Diversity and Inclusion on Air podcast. This podcast is a program of the Association of American Veterinary Medical College's Diversity Matters Initiative. The podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession and provides the AAVMC an opportunity to offer ongoing diversity programming to our member institutions as well as all veterinary professionals. My name is Dr. Lisa Greenhill, and I'm the Senior Director for Institutional Research and Diversity at the AAVMC. So on this podcast, we're going to be talking about generational difference and the job hunt. Now, we've done a number of shows on generational difference. Today, we're going to look very specifically at generational difference through the lens of the job hunt. So if you're looking for a job and you've got a bunch of different people that you're interviewing that all are in different age brackets, this is definitely the show for you. Currently, there are about five generations in the workforce. We're going to dive into that in a few minutes. Today, I am really, really excited. This is the second episode in a collaboration between AAVMC and VetCan. We'll be doing a number of shows kind of looking at this intersection around diversity and the job hunt specifically. So be on the lookout for those in your podcast feed. On the show, I'm delighted to welcome back to the show, Amanda Fark from The Ohio State University. Amanda was a guest on episode 50, where we talked about what does it mean to look professional? So go back in your podcast feed and take a look at that. And Amanda is joined by Sith Kaiser. Sith Kaiser? Yeah. Awesome. A practice owner and CEO of Blue Heron Consulting. So welcome to you both. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome back, Amanda. So I'm going to ask, actually ask Stith to tell us a little bit more about himself and what's he doing and how he's involved with VetCan and all of this good stuff. So Stith, you're up. Awesome. Thank you, Lisa. My story, how I got here, I grew up a son of a veterinarian. Dad was a mixed animal practitioner in Kentucky. So my earliest memories were bouncing around in a farm truck while he was headed out for to pull calves in the middle of the night. I, I'm one of the maybe few veterinarians or veterinarians, veterinarians kids these days that actually want to pursue the profession. So after going to college, I moved out west. I grew up in a small town, so I knew if I came back to Kentucky, where I'm from, I would always be seen as just uh, Dr. K's son, for better or for worse. And so I moved out west, became hospital administrator out there, and did that for a short stint, and then started a company called My Veterinary Career. That's actually how Amanda and I met. And My Veterinary Career was geared toward matching veterinarians with employment. So anywhere from private practice to corporate to industry, even to academia. And I'm no longer associated with that company. But it was really cool because as I think about generational differences, we dealt with that all day long, every single day. So I did that for a few years, had the opportunity to sell that company to the American Animal Hospital Association, which then gave me a chance to get more involved in the veterinary schools. And so I got to spend about five years traveling to pretty much every veterinary school in the United States, going in and talking about professional development. So actually, things like generational differences, resumes, cover letters all that kind of good stuff. And then long story short, so Amanda has time to tell her story, transitioned out of the American Animal Hospital Association a few years ago. As you mentioned, Lisa, I've been very fortunate to be a, a, continue to be a partner in a few privately owned veterinary hospitals, which is kind of neat because it gives me that perspective as a practice owner as we look at the whole job search process. As you also mentioned, I started a company called Blue Heron Consulting with a good buddy of mine about three years ago. And so we work with hospitals 
uh, all sizes and shapes all over North America, which again gives us some pretty unique perspectives and stories, sometimes good, sometimes bad, <laughs> uh, regarding generational differences. And then most recently with BetCan, I'm trying to fill Amanda's shoes as the uh, the new chair. So I'm, I'm halfway through, I think, and <laughs> still exists as an organization. So, so far, so good. <laughs> welcome, welcome. <laughs> I'm you. sure he is. Well, welcome. Welcome to the show. So Amanda, welcome back. So for our new listeners, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. I work at The Ohio State University. I run the Office of Career Management and Professional Development. And I've been in this role for eight hiring seasons now, uh, seven years. And so I've seen the market change quite a bit since the time that I've been in the veterinary profession. Previous to this, I worked in similar roles with MBAs within the law profession. So have a, a little bit different perspective um, coming into this more general and not just veterinary specific. But yeah, we've been running this office for eight years now. We help students figure out what they want to do and then how do they get there. And also work with alumni too, looking to career transition or to hire our students. All right. Well, welcome back. Thank you both for the work that you're doing out there with students and professionals. So, so let's jump in with you. So I mentioned at the top of the show, five generations. Is it five? Is it really five? Is it more? Is it less? The veterans are hanging on. I know, right? <laughs> when you said five, I was like, uh-oh, I miscounted. So I had I had four going into this okay. from baby boomers now mm-hmm. to Gen Z. We're hiring a right. lot of our support staff, especially at this point, are, are the Gen Z. So I, I'm, I'm missing one in there. I'm not sure who I'm missing, but that, that's... So there's, a, so, so there's a group. And again, you know, the edges for all of these groups are a bit fuzzy. So there's a group that is, I guess, they're not like that silent. They're not the, the greatest generation. They're after that, they are the traditionalists, uh, folks who are born before 19, about 46 or so. Okay. So there are a few of those. Those folks are kind of early 70s. You know, some of them are running for president right now. And <laughs> So they're still in the yeah. workforce. Like, yeah. like, those folks in there kind of like early to mid 70s are still kind of hanging around. Some of them are still working, still hiring, those kinds of things. And so that's kind of that 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 that's the the fifth kind of folks that are still hanging on. Some of them are eager to a- a- exit and some of them are just Having, still having a good time, right? So, so what are some of the biggest generational kind of is is generational difference really a source of conflict? I mean, we talk about it a lot. We say it is, but is it really? Who wants to take thought, it? <laughs> I thought a lot about this one, and I, I feel like what I'm going to say may fly in the face of what we're here to talk about today. But I acknowledge that generational differences absolutely exist, and there's a lot of people have been a lot of research that are a lot smarter than me. So I, I absolutely acknowledge. That, that there are generalities between generations. I think when we see conflict, especially on the practice side, where I see conflict pop up is not just because of generational differences, it's because of the issues that generational differences highlight. So mm-hmm. I'm thinking communication, mm-hmm. leadership, yeah. motivating and empowering your team. So yes, I think there's conflict around generations, but I think it's because the generational differences highlight conflict that we as an industry historically have not maybe handled as, as well as we could have. Mm, mm. I, would, I would agree. I think when I first started in this profession, it was a lot more on the tips of everybody's tongues. 
that generational differences cause this huge divide. And it was a, a topic of concern for a lot of our employers and our students. And Stith and I even gave a presentation at a Midwest Veterinary Conference probably six years ago, maybe, about generational differences. And since then, it just seems to have lessened or we've just become more accepted or accepting of that that's just how things are, that we are, you know, there are always going to be several generations in the workplace and there's always going to be conflict and we are really individuals. We're not just defined by our generation. So I think that that's something to keep in mind. So what might this, so so we know that there's kind of communication stuff. Sometimes there's just kind of, and that, that is sometimes a manifestation of some of the different values, things that we kind of, you know, hold so dear that might be a little bit different than say, you know, our parents or our grandparents who are apparently still in the workforce. So what might that look like when you're job hunting? Amanda? What is yeah. that? What's happening? Because you're helping like millennials, uh, not millennials, because like we've poor things, we've like dragged poor millennials like yes. for, <laughs> for Phil for like 10 years. And they're like, we're 40 now, leave us alone. <laughs> like, so, so you're helping Gen Zs who are coming into the workplace now. What kinds of things are you, are you seeing that they're kind of struggling with or what are employers who are in all of these other categories struggling with? Yeah, I think you've hit on it and Stith has too. It's that communication. So in the job search, we have more students reaching out to employers via social media, via texting, and more of a casual type of relationship than what we've seen in the past. Some employers enjoy that, love it. They prefer to be texted and some don't. Some still prefer, I would rather you show up in person and drop your resume off that way. Others would just send me a text and we'll talk about possibly meeting up for an interview type of situation. So that's one of the things, um, one of the areas that I'm really seeing Mm -hmm. some differences in. And so when employers will say, I'm really not happy with one of your candidates, they denied my offer via text. And then I come to find out when they were talking about the offer via text. So the candidate assumed that that type of communication was okay when other generations would be like, that's something that should be handled over the phone or in person. So that's some areas of conflict. Do either of you think that, uh, I guess, one of the things that that kind of really ran through your your comment was this use of technology, right? Has that complicated... (laughs) things has it i mean with everything right there's a, a a pro and a con right but but generally speaking is it more or less complicated with the use of technology outside of kind of just phone and i mean phone like you actually hold it to your ear phone not right. Like. <laughs> right so is it more complicated or not I would say it's more complicated because there are so many different channels and sometimes mm-hmm. people both sides employers and candidates it's hard to keep track of which way that you were communicating. So it is something that I would say if you're used to that type of communication where I am, I'm talking to, you, talking to you through Facebook and I'm texting you and I'm also emailing, that might be normal for a candidate. It might be hard on the employer side to, if they're not used to that realm of communication, to keep track of. And, and Sith, what were you seeing when you were really kind of, especially during your time at, at was it AHA? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. 
So when you were kind of working with employers and candidates, what were you really kind of seeing? Were you seeing this kind of phenomenon of like different threads of communication and different channels? And, and what kind of advice were you giving folks as they were navigating this space? I echo everything Amanda said about communication. And even now, I serve as adjunct at a couple of veterinary schools. And so I still get to work with students going out into the workforce. And so I still get to see some of these evolving trends. With communication, I think it's like actually a lot of things in, in probably life in general. And it comes, I think, down to setting expectations. Because you're right, what's appropriate while a text message may be appropriate for one employer or candidate may not be for the next one. And it can be an awkward subject maybe to broach. But I found if you broach it early in the relationship, it just helps set those boundaries, whether it's Facebook messaging or or texting or phone call, email, whatever it may be. What are you telling new grads? How can new grads kind of sidestep some of (laughs) the landmine of issues? So, you know, just imagine the blue haired student, (laughs) I say currently with blue hair, with a few tattoos and a nose ring. (laughs) (laughs) What can she do to kind of sidestep some of these generational conflicts that kind of manifest besides not dye my hair blue? (laughs) (laughs) So my go-to advice would be the same whether your hair is blue or pink or regardless of any tattoos or piercings or anything else you want to come up with. And I go back to a book that a mentor of mine recommended to me years ago called How to Win Friends and Influence People Mm. by Dale Carnegie. And the whole point of the book, and what I love about it is it applies in every aspect of life in practice, outside of practice for all the other opportunities that that exist for veterinarians. But it comes down to understanding who you're talking to, genuinely listening, and then as a job seeker, my point of advice is once you understand who you're talking to and you understand what problems they are trying to solve, your job as the job seeker is to do one of two things. Either decide this person's not the right fit for me as the job seeker. If I listen to this person talk about their problems and, and their practice or their, their company, is this the right fit? Yes or no? If the answer is no, professionally move on. If the answer is yes, then before you worry about haircuts and everything else, the job is present yourself as a solution. And what I have found on the employer side is that if we focus more on the problem we're trying to solve and how that applicant is a solution to that problem, we end up avoiding not all, but a lot of the landmines. That's great advice. So yeah, Amanda, did you want to go? Yeah, and Stood said it before too. It's about setting those or asking about expectations up front. Don't assume as a candidate, if I'm putting myself in the student's shoes, if I'm going to an interview or communicating with an employer, asking them, what is your preferred method of communication? Because some employers prefer phone calls, emails, as we have talked about. So assuming that they're okay with texting just because that's what we've been doing, maybe now that it's a formal search, that it's it's switched now to email or phone call. So always asking is the best way to avoid the assumption making. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so what about those, we're not going to call them old, seasoned professionals mm-hmm. who are looking for these solutions to their problems? <laughs> what kind of counsel, I mean, are, are you giving to those employers that are like, oh my goodness, like your candidate ghosted me, but they didn't really ghost me. They just kind of used a different channel and I didn't look there. <laughs> yeah. Well, one issue we have right now actually is that on the um, AVMA job board, there are a lot of students who will post their resumes, but there are 
10,000 times more employers that are reaching out to them. So these students are getting contacted sometimes even up to 100 emails a day. And I've had employers reach out and say, I'm, I'm upset. I haven't heard back from these folks. And they can just explain to them, well, I don't know if you understand the volume of emails that they are getting. So it's not just your email that they're getting a lot of connections. So one thing is for hiring managers or doctors out there actively searching is for them to understand the marketplace, understand what the, the conditions are going on, that really reaching millennial generation Z is talking about what else their practice has to offer via culture, well-being, commitment to uh, mentoring or teamwork type philosophy. That's some things that our, our students are looking for. So it's not just, hey, I have a job, contact this number. It's explaining a little bit more about what you have to offer. So also kind of recognizing that, the, I mean, the student has a problem, the new grad or soon to be new grad has a problem as well. And that is unemployment <laughs> and they want to be employed. So they're also kind of looking for a solution, right? And so it sounds like those employers also, especially in the current market, have to kind of sell themselves too. Yeah as the solution to, you know, like I have an, you know, not only do I have this job, but there's a a work environment, the type of work environment that maybe Gen Z's are really looking for that maybe Gen X's didn't really look for, you know, 20 years ago. So what should mentoring, coaching, and sponsorship kind of look like intergenerationally in these spaces? So like, um, so we're seeing kind of folks coaching and all of those types of things, but we also know that as folks are looking for jobs, particularly newly entering the workforce, they're also looking for mentoring. They're new grads, especially that we're talking about some of the, the, the Gen Z folks, they're new grads, they are still learning. They're definitely day one competent, but they're they're newbies. So what does that look like? What should they be asking for? And what should employers, besides, you know, I mean, there's not going to be a swimming pool out of bags, folks. So I just relax. But <laughs> there might be a really nice coffee maker. But like, what, is it, what should that kind of intergenerational kind of mentoring and coaching and that first kind of job maybe look like? Having been there. <laughs> The biggest opportunity I see for new grads coming out of school or just during the interview process talking about mentoring is the the opportunity to focus on not what it does for them as the mentee, but what it will do for the mentor. Mm. I see a lot of recent grads and everything you said, Lisa, you're exactly right. Yes, they're competent, but but veterinary medicine is, is always evolving, always changing. Every single one of us can grow but instead of coming out and saying, well, I need mentorship to be able to do A, B, C, and D, or I lack confidence in A, B, C, or D, coming out and leading off right from the get-go about how mentorship is going to value not only the interviewee, but also that, that interviewers, that potential mentors practice or, or wherever it may be. I think that's probably the, the number one opportunity because I see so many employers get turned off as soon as the word mentorship is used because they immediately... I feel like think one of two things. One, this person just wants their hand held. Or you still have a generation that believes that just because they did it a certain way, just because they were thrown into the deep end to sink <laughs> or swim, that everybody else should have to suffer the same way. But I think if we can change the conversation around to make it focus on the employer first, the mm. odds of being able to have a productive conversation go up. Mm. Any other thoughts, Amanda? 
Yeah, I think he's brought up a, a couple of great points that mentoring really does mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So we actually coach our students if they don't know when they're applying for a position, what that philosophy or what that certain employer has towards mentoring, do not use that word in your cover letter because it can throw a lot of employers off and right away they think this person needs handheld. No way am I, am I even considering them. So then when the interview comes up, that's your time to explore further. What will my onboarding, mentoring, coaching situation look like? Can you explain that more to me? What time period will it take me to achieve the, the spay neuter 20 minute? What time period will that take? Get up <laughs> How long will it take yeah. to get to that? Yeah. Anyway, so we ask, we tell them to ask these questions. So it, it is more upfront. They know what they're getting into. And on the reverse side too, with employers, we coach them to understand that they are coming from an environment, a school environment where they have been taught. And so jumping right into the deep end is not really a great learning environment for anybody. Right. And it's not just veterinary specific. You know, a, a lawyer doesn't graduate and go straight into the courtroom. That doesn't happen. They're mentored, they're coached, and they build up to that. So really any profession, any graduate, undergrad, professional degrees, you need that time period in which to get your skills and confidence up to speed. So interesting, though, that it sounds like the, the that that initial kind of raising of the word <laughs> mentoring. And I again, I hate to use like these kind of catchphrases that we're so kind of bombarded with, but it sounds like there's almost like a triggering reaction that happens. Like I saw mentoring in the in the cover letter. I don't want to deal with this. That's a really kind of interesting phenomenon, especially since we've spend so much time while they're in school telling them how important a mentor is, but then don't talk about it on the cover letter. Yeah. And it is kind of confusing then for the students and the candidates of how exactly should I approach this when I have been told that this, my first job out is the most single important thing that I'm going to do and the type of mentoring that I receive. And then now I'm not supposed to talk about it. So it does create an awkward situation. It can. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you've, but you've raised some really good questions and ways that they can kind of bring it up later once they have an opportunity to, to actually talk and have interaction and during an interview kind of scenario. So that's really um, important. I think that it's, you know, we talk a lot just generally in the profession about the importance of mentoring and coaching. I'm starting to see, and I just did, did a piece on sponsorship and that sponsorship for me being kind of more encompassing and kind of making sure that the mentor also has some skin in the game. Like we know in the, the, the mentoring re- mentee relationship is, is an important one and it should be beneficial to both. And I do think that, that it's important for less seasoned and less experienced folks to understand that mentoring is not just a one-way street, but that it is really a collaborative relationship that, that should benefit both parties. Whereas sponsorship is, is you know, the mentor is it's more outward facing saying the mentor is like, Hey, you need to chat with my new associate and let me introduce you and let me network and, and kind of help you make those connections. But, it, but it's just, it's so important, whatever lingo <laughs> we choose to use and really trying to make sure that new grads understand that they're going to be, that we still want them to be supported in all of these different kinds of environments. So I do want to shift topics just a little bit to talk about kind of the intersectional issues related to generational conflict. So we are now graduating 
81% women. We This year, we'll have over nearly about 21% students of color at the vet schools. We know that there is a growing population of LGBT students that will be coming in, are in, and are emerging into the workplace. And the reality, I mean, you know, in a perfect world, we wouldn't have to talk about this, but it's not, right? So so here we are. We have to kind of talk about these things are layered onto the age stuff, right? So how, what should we do about that? <laughs> how do we talk about those kinds of things? Yeah, I the first issue that comes to mind when we think about the intersection is the generational and the gender mm. and how we have the, the seasoned, white male employers and the female younger associates looking to interview. And the perception that some employers have is that I'm offering a salary that a male deserves to be paid more because he's supporting a family. And that's sometimes an implicit bias that employers have. And if we're not aware of it, we can't check it and, you know, check, uh, question ourselves. Why do I think that? Because it's no longer the case where males are the breadwinners and that there's the only ones supporting the family. Females do too. So that's one of the issues that I see. I also see an assumption from employers that a young female looking um, for a job is that they're going to have a family someday. And that'll be a burden that we're going to have one attorney leave. And that also is an implicit bias that hopefully employers are more so checking themselves and questioning the, that mm-hmm. belief. Yeah, Sith, what are you seeing in the <laughs> across the board? Said, this is a it's a tough one because discrimination exists for, right. for anything and everything, and it's probably always going to exist. And that's not making an excuse or saying it's okay by any means. For those for the employers out there, for, for the generation that's doing the hiring or the generations, it, it's the simple stuff we learn in kindergarten. Be open-minded. I mean, treat people the way you want people to be treated. You know, Amanda brought up a really good point with the wage gap, you know, with, within genders. And, and she's exactly right. But there are solutions out there now that can help at least mitigate that. If you look at, you know, pro-sour or some sort of production-based pay, and I'm not saying that's always a solution. There's pros and cons to everything. But if someone is, if a, if a new grad is worried about that, there are tools like other forms of compensation that may be able to help him or her or whatever the situation may be keep from being a victim of somebody else's bias. And there's just also going to be some employers that are just not the right fit for you as a job seeker. And that's okay too. We have to all be able to recognize that sometimes things just isn't the right fit, go somewhere else. Uh, And fortunately, as you all have both touched on, at least right now, the job market is phenomenal. And we all know it's going to shift at some point in time. This thing is cyclical. So we shouldn't just assume it's going to be this way forever. But just my two cents. Yeah, yeah. I mean, these are these are not new issues, right? <laughs> They're not new issues. I do, you know, some of the things I, I certainly encourage new grads and job seekers in general are making sure that you know the, the state and local laws that apply to discrimination, anti-discrimination things. I know like California just was, I guess they're the first state to, at the state level anyway, to pass legislation and, and make it a law not to discriminate on hair. And so those are, you know, things that are really important to people 
people. But yeah, I mean, you know, I, I tell people all the time, I'm like, just bring your act right to work. Like, that's really what I need everybody to do. Just bring their act right and their their self-respect and their respect for others to work. <laughs> like, just, you know, let's, let's do that. So I want to hear a little bit, instead of kind of focusing on the negative, what are some examples that you've seen, particularly Yusuf, of multi-generational employer employees that are just really just doing it? What are some of the things that, you know, they're doing that seem to be working? To your first kind of question there, Lisa, about some of the benefits of it, I'm going to go right to a practice owner's pocketbook on this. Yeah. <laughs> by, by asking the question, how many of us serve only one generation of clients? And, and my assumption is very few hospitals do. And so right off the bat, the more diverse team I have, the more diverse range of clients that will be able to relate to and hopefully build rapport and trust with my team. So that to me is the number one benefit. We've all seen plenty of studies about just how teams perform better, think more creatively, with diversity, and I'm talking diversity across everything you could possibly yeah. fit in the box of diversity right now. So a, a lot of benefit from a business perspective. Now, Lisa, your question, how do you actually make that work? It's one thing we're sit here and say we want we want there to be different generations, but we also realize that anytime you have a, a diverse group of people, there's gonna be some challenges, whether it's communication, yeah. whether it's how they view what work is in their life. Uh, you know, do they live to work or work to live? And the, the number one advice that I can give based on what I've seen be successful is, and, and, and veterinarians are on the same thing with their patients, treat everybody as an N of one. No matter how they look or what symptoms they exhibit, that patient or that employee is an N of one. And if we can get to know every employee as a single person, sure, they may very well exhibit some generalizations associated with their generation, and that's fine. But we also know, and I'll use Amanda. Amanda and I are both still millennials, which is nice. We don't get bashed as much now. We've moved on to our generation. Uh, you look at everything you accomplished, <laughs> and especially when she started at the Ohio State once seven or so years ago, a lot of of our generation was maybe still living in the basement with their parents, and so that's what our generation was known for. But you have people like, like Amanda out there, and that's why I love studying generations. I love understanding what what common characteristics are. But at the end of the day, everybody's an individual. And as a leader in a hospital, it's our job to get to know what motivates, what makes every one of our team members tick. Because once we understand why they're there, why they come to work, why they chose veterinary medicine, then all of a sudden, instead of trying to make a one leadership style fit all or one communication style fit all, we can, and I, and I believe for what it's worth, that it's our responsibility as, as leaders to tailor how we communicate and how we lead not expect our team to, to change how they communicate to, to fit our style. Long-winded answer, but the hospitals okay. that I've seen do this well, do that. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I was just at a meeting where we were talking about even just kind of the wellness piece, right? And that 80% of the wellness piece is really the toxic environment and 20% is the, you know, folks maybe with some some challenge from personal challenges and issues and those, this type of thing. And sometimes we spend so much time talking about the 20% and how we can help them cope in the trash environment. <laughs> we don't actually address the trash environment. <laughs> low-hanging fruit. I was always told, focus on low-hanging fruit. <laughs> right, right. And so we don't like try to look at the systems level. We are like, okay, well... 
the system is trash. So let's like just focus on how to how to survive in that, right? And that, that isn't necessarily the it might be the low hanging fruit, but it's not. You know, we need to deal with the, the trash environment. So Amanda, what are you what are you seeing? From the employer perspective or the... Yeah, well, from from both. And also recognizing, too, that even, you know, within our colleges, there, you know, I was actually just visiting a school just this week and they were talking about just, they have a whole new influx of faculty and the faculty are much younger and then there are faculty that are not, right? And so they're a season and and that's causing some stuff. Yeah, I'm seeing from a... a veterinary profession-wide, some of the corporate practices are able to provide a little bit more of that flexibility, a little bit more, maybe some benefits that the younger generations appreciate, more of the well-being, more student loan repayment options. And there's a whole issue whether that's even beneficial or not. So not even getting into that part, but offering a different array Mm -hmm. of benefits to a package is sometimes what we're seeing that are attracting candidates to those places. Banfield in particular seems to be very helpful with employees that want to work part-time and scheduling around different people's needs. And I think flexibility is something that used to be a hot point for a different generation that baby boomers would look at millennials and say, all they want is, you know, work these certain amount of hours and have this all this flexibility or flex time. And really every generation wants flexibility. It just looks different and it's for different reasons. If we can see that just because I have a perspective of, you know, you, you should work six to five and or seven to five and those are the hours or, you know, if a client comes in late, you need to stay later. Millennials, Generation Z sees work as a little bit more, I can work these hours and go home and work out and then commit myself to keeping up to date on client records or answering emails after that. And so it's maybe not the nine to five that traditional traditionalists prefer. <laughs> However, it's something that I think the entire society is moving forward. It's just difficult because of practices typically do have set hours. So within mm-hmm. the veterinary profession, it's kind of hard to provide that flexibility from the employer's perspective. So. Mm-hmm. so there's a need for more flexibility, even though we recognize that kind of some of those overall systems just have some real serious boundaries around that. Exactly. But, but like really trying to help folks think about exploring what they can do within those confines, right? Right. So what other advice would either of you kind of give to search committees and some of those teams that are hiring? So Amanda? The more diverse, as Steph already mentioned, the more diverse you can have your search committee, the better. And that's whether it's ethnically, racially, generationally, gender, it's across all boards. The, the more diverse, the better you're going to have a committee to find great candidates who are also diverse. Mm-hmm. So that's a suggestion I would give, especially in higher education. We do have a lack of female uh, candidates for faculty positions. And if we don't have females serving on that search committee, it can be daunting to mm-hmm. find, you know, both racially and gender, gender yeah. diverse, diversity sure. in those candidates. So. Sure. Steph, any suggestions? Second, everything Amanda said, be aware of maybe the biases that we, we may not have normally been aware that we even had. And then regardless of the position you're trying to fill, 
think if you worry about anything too much, you lose the sight of, of what you're trying to accomplish with the position. So for me, it, it starts with why. What, what do I need done? What's the mission of the organization? What, how do I need this role to fit in? And if we focus on that, then in an ideal world, the best candidate is always one that gets chosen because we, we focused on what our why is as an organization, what we need this, this person to be able to do. So I think if we do that and do the things that Amanda mentioned, then again, ideally, we eliminate a lot of the, the entertainment, if you will, that can go on if we get sidetracked. Yeah. yeah. We actually have all of our um, interviewees who interview our admissions folks. They have to go through implicit bias training before they're even allowed to serve on that. So it, that's helpful. One step toward possibly identifying some perceptions you may have going into those types of situations. Yeah, I actually was going to just recommend that, that, you know, if you're starting a search, but even just in terms of kind of those professional development offerings, because I do think that it's certainly not just relevant to searches and hiring, but also just thinking about how you treat your clients and what, you know, what the presentation is when they, when they bring the animal in and kind of, we all kind of have that, you know, what is it, that first impression. And then we kind of create a little narrative about the individual, but really we when you're hiring and delivering care, it's just really important to to really seek out those resources for some implicit bias. There, the project Implicit from Harvard. It's online. You can they take the test. <laughs> There's like dozens of them, so you can find out all kinds of some often awful and awful awesome information about yourself and what your personal biases are. But but then there's some great resources to kind of help you think about it. We all have biases. Biases are not always bad, but when they are a part of a decision-making process, sometimes it can become really challenging. So definitely some advice I would co-sign for both of you um, to, to the search committees and those teams, but also to the potential employees too. So don't just look at those boomers, you know, when you're saying, okay, boomer, uh, <laughs> thing. Right. like, don't say that during the interview. Don't do that. <laughs> don't, don't do that. But really also check, you know, check the biases about seniors. So those boomers and those traditionalists and, and, you know, don't assume that they're not, they're not right there with you, like, you know, hashing it out on Twitter. So, so any other intergenerational issues that you think we should highlight? As we kind of wrap this to a close, that specifically around employment, the big, big, you know, clashes, clash of the titans kind of. (laughs) Yeah, something I see changing that is not unique to the veterinary profession is there's no longer the desire for everyone to be a practice owner. Mm. You saw this in the law profession too, that not everybody wants to be on the path to be partner. And that they had to create this new track where you're an associate and that you advance through the associate levels. Mm. I think that that's something that we're seeing the, the veterinary profession too and have for years, but it's something that I think will affect the profession as a whole. And then also looking at from the candidate perspective, generationally, and this is not just the veterinary profession, is that younger people want to live more in cities and metropolitan areas. And so how that affects the services we're able to provide rural areas as we progress, that may impact it. 
Absolutely. We just uh, recently did a show on women practice owners um, working on large animals and living in rural communities. And both of the the owners um, featured on that show really kind of talked about how much they liked that lifestyle. But we also recognize that, yeah, I mean, you know, probably about 75% of our applicants now are not coming Mm -hmm. from rural communities you know, most of them have no desire to go to a rural community afterwards either. And you're also seeing more and more rural folks kind of move to suburbia and move towards the city. So I definitely see that as a as a as a challenge. And certainly we're also seeing, and I mean Sith, I don't know if there's you want to comment on this, kind of what some of those needs are out in rural communities and and you know, what is it that that those folks who are hiring in those communities can do to sweeten the pot. I mean, and and recognizing that sweeten the pot isn't just about money. Right. So before I forget, Lisa, I also mentioned compensation as another topic I see uh. <laughs> of tension. But let me let me go to your, your question. Speaking of sweetening the pot, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, the pot. Uh, so I, I grew up in a small town. Again, dad was mixed animal practitioner. Two of my hospitals are mixed animal in rural areas. So to answer your question, what can we do to try to, to sweeten the pot? You're right. Just like not everybody wants to live in a high-rise downtown, not everybody wants to live in, in rural America, perfectly fine. So the first goal, and, and I just this may I think it may have been AVMC data, but where people come from tends to be where they gravitate toward back toward. So from the rural practice perspective, we recognize we're not going to get 75% of the, of the veterinary population to all of a sudden want to move to, to rural <laughs> Idaho, for example. So we focus on the folks that maybe grew up in that environment or that were exposed to it. Because certainly there's people that did not grow up in an environment that exposed, fell in love with it. In, in any environment, start with looking at the challenges and the hurdles to, that are keeping people from wanting to be there. So in, in rural practice, for your to your point, after-hour emergency is certainly something that that drags people down. The fact that still a lot of our rural practices are solo practitioners, and that's mm-hmm. going to have implications when it comes to things like mentorship. A lot of times, even basic things like practice management. A lot of the solo practitioners are so are working so hard in their business they can't work on their business, which makes it very difficult to have enough revenue and enough profit to bring somebody new on. And so, one of the biggest challenges in rural practice is people can't make a living. And, and there's a lot of different reasons why that is. But on, coming from the rural practice side, what can we do? Number one, we have to work on our business. Because if we don't have a business that has the caseload to support somebody new, or if we're not willing to turn loose to the reins enough to let someone come grow something they're passionate about within our business, then there's no economic incentive at all. Staff, you know, we, we know at least anecdotally, certainly that if a veterinarian is supported with good support staff, he or she will be more productive. Hopefully, the patient care will be improved as well. But the old mentality for a lot of the rural practitioners is, I'm a, I'm a one, I'm going to say man in this case, because that generation it yeah. tended to be, I'm a one-man show. And that's fine for you to be a one-man show, as long as you realize the one-man show ends when you end. Right. And there is no transition plan. There is no legacy. And I think we've got to challenge the business mm-hmm. model. And that's really my take-home for rural practice is doing it the way we've always done it. It may support a, a good wage for the individual owner, but it, it generally does not lend itself towards passing something on and growing. 
And we work with Colorado State University under a federal grant looking specifically at rural practices and the sustainability of rural practices. And so we were able to really dive into getting profit and loss statements from hospitals, staffing numbers. So started looking for trends. What makes some hospitals more successful? And granted, successful can be defined different ways. And what we found is what would make sense is that people that focused on running the business, not only working in the business as a veterinarian, tended to have higher margins, which allowed them to reinvest in equipment, reinvest in facilities, reinvest in staff. People that focused on not just practicing the way they wanted to practice, but practicing based on what the clients wanted, had higher client numbers, higher client retention. A lot of it is common sense may come across the wrong way. But if we slow down enough to think about it, there are things that aren't rocket science. It's just yeah. slowing down enough to start changing how we practice and how we run our practice to really serve those who allow us to do what we do. I think it's so you've raised some really great points. And I think that it's also important for those job seekers who might be interested in that to understand that those are some of the kind of constrictions around that. But but it also gives them some information to ask about, right? The other thing is, and again, I'm not trying to stereotype our seasoned <laughs> professionals, but Change is good <laughs> sometimes, especially if you want to have a legacy and a sustaining kind of practice that will live beyond you. I know, you know, I have wonderful parents. Shout out to Ed and Angie. But like, we also know that just culturally, some generations are like very resistant to even kind of sharing that information because even from a business perspective, it's still personal, right? Don't get into my finances. I don't want to talk about it. Those kinds of things, which make it really, really difficult for folks to kind of get some of the financial and business help that they actually need to be more successful and actually have something to leave, right? Yeah, I could definitely see those as generational issues. So everybody work on that. <laughs> There's some great resources out there and definitely, you know, call our friend Steph over here if you're interested in learning more about, you know, some of those things that you can do to make your practice more sustainable and attract all of those, you know, 25% of graduates who are really, really interested in coming out there and working for you. With that, anything else for my guests for the good of the order? Any shout outs, any like parting advice, any sage wisdom from these two millennials that I have on the show? I identify as a cusper. Okay. Depending on the resource that you um, refer to, I'm either an Xer or a millennial, but I identify with both. So I think being a cusper is actually a good term for me. Which is funny because, yeah, the new some of the new stuff out there is recognizing those cuspers as a, their own unique kind of yeah. slice as well. I have a younger sister who is also a cusper, and she's different from me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> In a good way, but she's different. <laughs> she's <Yeah>. different. <laughs> Anything else? To- <laughs> I'm just laughing because my sister, we actually hired her about two years ago. And she's two years younger than I am. And as I look at these these general generations, <laughs> she embodies everything that I feel like is negative about millennials. It's like she's all the time. And of course she pushes back. She's actually phenomenal, but I always give her a hard time for I'm like, man, you're such a millennial. I'm like, oh crap, look in the mirror. Uh, so, yes. <laughs> no, I, I think Lisa, in terms of of you know, parting thought, you know, what got us here, whether it's the model of practice, whether it's how we hire people, how we retain people, how we train people, how we treat our clients. What got us here 
will not by itself get us where this profession's going. And that to me is the biggest driver of change. I actually, I think I heard at the, the economic summit, if you don't like change, try irrelevance. And that to me just really speaks volumes to if nothing else, that ought to get us to challenge how we look at things. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you just wait because the 2000, the 2008 babies are coming into higher ed right now. And there's a bunch more of them because there wasn't a whole lot to do during that time. There was a lot of money going around. <laughs> we all watch out because there's a new generation coming and we'll really be excited to see what they bring to these conversations. So with that, Sid, Amanda, thank you so much. Thank uh, you. I hope to have continue some of these conversations on future episodes. And with that, I'll wrap this episode of AAVMC's Diversity and Inclusion on air. You can find the podcast on just about every podcast app. You can also find us on Facebook at AAVMC's Diversity and Inclusion on air, where I post all kinds of great information about diversity and inclusion in veterinary medicine, but also in higher ed more broadly. We also post a lot of things from vet camp and from other groups that are doing some really great work. Um, so definitely shout out to VetCan. Thank you so much for this collaboration. And with that, we will see you next time. Thank you. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you.